Hello, you're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia France. Today, we're talking about the job market, by which we mean hot tips on how not to be completely unemployed. Uh, We're also going to have a little retrospective on some past episodes. Michelle sent us some super interesting voice memos about fandom, and since our political extremism episode was recorded before the election, naturally we're going to have to do a bit of a follow-up. So, actually, you have a real job, so I feel like (laughs) I should be the one to ask. Serena, how did you get your job? Um, by accident. (laughs) (laughs) So... I'm sure a lot of people out there who like have been looking for jobs will know that the job hunting process is just really depressing. Um, and so when I when I graduated with my honors and I like freaked out and I realized I had to find a job, I sent out maybe like 40, 50 different job applications to like anything that was anything related to physics or math or like analytical skills kind of thing. Uh, and I heard back from one, and uh, I didn't get that one. And it wasn't until I actually got out of the house and like started talking to people, and it wasn't until... Do you know how I got my current job? No, I've got no idea. Oh, okay. Um, so you know how hungry was a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that got picked up by Webstock, which is a, it's a really big web conference in Wellington. Mm-hmm. And they have a startup alley every year in which they tell you to pitch your business. And so we got in as a finalist for some incredible reason. And, and we were asked to come to Wellington and pitch our business. So we came to Wellington. Uh, I pitched Hungary and there were a lot of BNZ people there because BNZ sponsors Webstock. And uh, they asked me, like, oh, this website looks really cool. Who did it? And I was like, oh, yeah, I designed it. I built it. And eventually they were like, so do you want a job? To which I said, you're going to pay me money to do stuff? Hell yeah. (laughs) Like, of course (laughs) I want that. (laughs) Um, So quite literally, like, I feel like my job, I got my job by accident. Um, But throughout that process, what I did learn from it was that the essentially like what they tell you in high school and what they tell you at school of like how you find a job, you like go look on Seek or LinkedIn or whatever and you just like apply for them, that doesn't work. And what works is getting out there, going to industry events and meeting people. Which is kind of um daunting, especially for someone like me who 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 isn't an extrovert (laughs) but um yeah that's what I learned you just have to go out there and meet people how about you what are you well I mean I'm so I'm a full-time PhD student Mm -hmm. uh which is like having a job except you get paid less you're more stressed and no one respects you um Hmm. I get a lot of respect Uh, What I kind of found, actually, and I think the really interesting part of my story was about getting funding. So essentially, Mm -hmm. in order to do a PhD, you need to convince someone that you're worth paying to do a PhD, albeit paying substantially below minimum wage. Mm. Um, And generally, like, you want to convince them that you're worth paying for, like, three years. That would be a good thing. 
Uh, and I in Australia, there is a particular set of scholarships called the APA, um, so the Australian Postgraduate Award, which look at your CV and decide whether you should get paid. Okay. And at this point in time, I did not look... Like, I, they mostly look at your transcripts. And okay. I didn't do great in exams. Like, I scraped into honours. Like, I kind of... I had a lot of extracurricular activities. And yeah. the sort of side effect of that was that I didn't do great in exams. Um, I also just, like, don't think and have never really thought that sitting down and writing for three hours is ever going to be, in, like, a good way of determining how good you are at research like Mm -hmm. that just seems ridiculous to me and I did very well in honours year which is like how I got into the PhD program um but unfortunately the APA actually pays attention to you know how you test so I didn't get that and I kind of freaked out and then I wrote to a group the um, Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation that funds sort of research in mitochondrial disorders and I said hey I'm not good enough for an APA am I good enough for you um, and then when they did get back to me, uh, I got a phone call from, um, the CEO, I believe. And he was just like, you're perfect. Like, we really want you to do this. Like, mm. and they saw my extracurriculars as a bonus rather than something that was just like there. So I really, I appreciate them so much. And like, I think I have managed to do some really good work sort of with them. Um, I volunteered at like some days with them and like I've managed to sort of be involved in, so I did a fundraising walk where I walked 35 kilometers and I raised like $500 um, for the AMDF because like that, that's important to me. And I think Mm. it's really important to kind of have that connection with the people you're working with. And that's really cool. I think I've got a lot of benefit out of it, even though, you know, my, my test marks were never great. Um, I've certainly found that for jobs that look at your exam results, uh, I mean, I tend to not get them, so I might be slightly biased, but uh, they seem to me like they would be worse places to work because mm-hmm. they put emphasis on something that isn't necessarily indicative of how good you are at working. Yeah, that's something that I've also noticed with um, transitioning from academia to the private sector is that when it comes to actually working at a job, the things that you get taught at school or university, um, 90% of that goes towards background knowledge, and most of it doesn't apply to your day-to-day life. Like, sitting down taking a test for maths, for example, isn't going to indicate how good you are at being a, a math professor, um, similarly with anything else, like doing a computer science course isn't necessarily going to indicate how good you are as a working software developer even because so much of our everyday lives our jobs I find interactions with other people learning how to work with someone that you've never met before learning how to be productive get people together and that's not something they teach you and like working with working with people is a major issue in the STEM field in that like Mm. They tend to attract the less sociable type of person. Um, and so if you're not forced to work with other people at any point sort of during your career or not forced to work with any other people who aren't like you, mm. then when you start getting, like, real jobs as opposed to whatever academia throws at you. Because, it, like, for the vast majority of people who do undergraduate jobs, 
undergraduate degrees or even PhDs, mm. you will leave academia at some point and that may not be entirely your choice. Yeah. Um, and that's – you have to learn to work with other people at that point and it's often – and I find particularly particularly with men – they just don't see it as a skill that they need. And it's like, my dudes, please just learn to be nice. I do find it interesting how um, skills such as working with other people and things like quick conflict resolution, just eat like normal conversational skills even, they're labelled as the uh, quote-unquote soft skills, as if they're not uh, legit enough to be the quote-unquote hard skills, which is stuff like your aptitude in whatever field you're in. So, I don't know, like, how good you are at math, how good you are at biology, how good you are at programming, design, whatever. Or even, like, problem-solving in the very strict sense of solving a problem that arises not from people. Mm. And that's stuff that you can't really take a test for. That's stuff that shows itself when, um, when you're in the real world, working on a real-world problem with other people who, you know, have different opinions and different ways of working and you have to try and bring everyone together in a way that after about six months you actually turn out with a good solution. And I mean, to an extent, that's why you will often get questions at job interviews, like explain when you've dealt with conflict, explain when you've dealt with failure and, like, why you did that. Mm. Um, but even that, like, won't show a potential employer how good you are at that unless, and, like, that's sort of, a lot of the time where your references will come in and your extracurriculars will come in because like, if you've been the leader of like a big students group then you'll have had to deal with conflict resolution at some point mm. and like that will sort of show on your CV but it's certainly something that isn't emphasised particularly I think to younger people as something that's quite necessary mm. and particularly to us who come from STEM <laughs> yeah we're yeah. very much hard skills, hard skills. How good are you at the thing that you're supposed to do? Let's ignore the fact that we have to work with people. <laughs> well, I can't remember who said it to me, but I certainly remember learning through undergrad that, like, you shouldn't, like, if you can avoid it or, like, unless there's some other serious bonus, mm. you shouldn't do your PhD in the same lab that you did your honours in. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good advice. Yeah, because you needed to be able to show that you can work with different groups of people. Yeah. Like, if you're very good at working on one particular thing, that shows no evidence that you will ever be good at working on anything else. Mm. Um, I think the other thing as well, looking at jobs and job applications, is like you can certainly take the route of finding jobs and applying for them um, online, but you need to know that you look good on paper. Mm. And for a lot of people, like, and, like, I don't say this to be arrogant, but, like, I have a really good CV. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I could just, like, send it to people and probably get a job out of that. Like, I just, I, I look great on paper. Um, I'm also amazing in person, and I probably want to, like, use that in order to get a job because, like, that's how I know what I'm getting in for as well. Mm. Um, but... If you don't know that you look good on paper, and that's more than just, like, getting straight A's. It's things like having your extracurriculars, like, having stuff outside your very specific field, law students. Um, <laughs> that's, like, showing that you're a person rather than a robot that gets good marks. Like, mm. that's super important. And if you're not sure that you look really good on paper, then you need to be 
getting out there and not like getting out there like phoning people and asking for jobs because that is very um, how our parents found work and that's not how it kind of works anymore it means mm. going to networking events it means signing up with professional societies it means like so um there's a lot of really good networks here in melbourne and throughout australia so there's things like uh Atsy. There's also the Australian Biotech Group, which is like free to attend a lot of their events, and they have events in all the major cities in Australia. There's stuff like, um, there'll be students groups that sort of have connections with professional societies. So the one I was involved with for quite a while, Women in Science and Engineering. Every year we hold a networking event, and you just turn up to those and you talk to people. And that way you start figuring out what the job landscape looks like, what employers are looking for, and how you can move forward. Mm. So in the tech industry, we have things like uh, meetup groups for different sub-sectors in the tech industry, which are precisely the same thing. Like, you, you show up, there's a bunch of people, there usually is a, is a talk on, you listen to the talk, you learn some stuff, and then afterwards there's beers, pizza, and you just hang around and talk to people. What I found is really good also is that if there's someone, like a bunch of people in your industry who you admire, who you'd like to be in the same position as them one day with the same kind of job, even doing something like sending them a, a message on, on Twitter or whatever and saying, hey, I really want to be like where you are in five years or something and asking if they have any advice for you. Um, you'd be surprised at how many people reply back. And even if you go to one of these networking events and you just talk to one person, that can be incredibly helpful. And again, like, to the people out there who are like me, who are just, like, walking into a room of strangers is the most daunting thing ever, uh, you would be surprised at how many people out there want to help you and want to see you succeed, even though they don't know you. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, and I think um, something that's got a lot of traction recently is the idea of like having mentors and um, sponsors as well. Mm. So like mentors being people that you meet up with every so often and you go, what is my life doing? And they go, okay, what is your life doing? We'll work through this together. Mm. Um, and sponsors being people who sort of like talk you up behind closed doors. So when you're not around, they look out for your interests. Um, and you can just, like, ask people to be your mentor. You can just send them messages on LinkedIn and be like, hey, uh, I would really like to be mentored by you. Do you want to meet up for a coffee and see how this dynamic works? Mm. Um, if you've got room on your dance card, like, I'd love for this to be something more professional. And that's just... It's very straightforward, but you need to get over, like, the regular self-talk, which I've also suffered from in the past, which is just, like, no one wants to hear from you. <laughs> People do want to hear from you. They want to know, like, who's out there, who they can employ in, like, you know, the next couple of years. Like, and they mm. want to know and meet intelligent young people because we give them energy. Yeah, have you been a part of um, a, like, mentor-mentee relationship? Yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been on, I'm on both sides currently. So mm -hmm. I'm being mentored and I have a mentee. Mm -hmm. um, I got my mentor through Out for Australia, which is a group that connects um, queer youth with like queer adults or allies uh, in the mm -hmm. workplace. Mm -hmm. um, and we just kind of meet up every six weeks or so and have a chat. 
Uh, my mentor has said at times that he's not entirely sure why he's mentoring me, mm-hmm. but it's really nice to have just like an older person that I can like kind of like dump all my feelings on <laughs> and be like, here are all of my feelings about work and I don't know how to navigate this. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes he'll just convince me that I should do what I was going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is really nice to be able to hit up someone and be like, Hey, like, should I, should I be doing this? Is a decision I've made a good one? Um, and that's really good. Uh, I'm also mentoring a student at Monash. Um, she's doing the Global Challenges program. Cool. Uh, and I started mentoring her because I was talking. So I know her through debating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to her and a friend of hers. Um, and they were sort of saying they're both uh, of Indian descent. And they were sort of saying, like, Judith, anyway, was saying, like, I really want to mentor. But, like, I don't know if, like, just getting a white woman will help me at all. Mm-hmm. Because there's things like the bamboo ceiling and they don't really understand exactly what I'm going through. Like, I'd Mm. love, you know, someone else who understands my experiences to kind of be helping me. And I was like, my dude, (laughs) I have so many connections. Let me hook you up. And so, like, I asked her what she she was interested in and what kind of spaces she liked. Um, And I set her up with a few mentors. And I was like, well, hopefully one of these will work, but let me know if nothing works out. And, like, I'll, you know, sort you out. Mm. Um, And then I was talking to... The other young lady, um, Tanea, and she was sort of describing what she was interested in. I was like, shit, <laughs> you sound like me hmm. when I was in the first year. And, mm-hmm. like, I totally understand if you prefer someone, like, that wasn't white. But, like, do you want me to be your mentor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she was absolutely stoked by this. And, like, we sort of meet up, you know, again, every six weeks or, like, when she can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sort of work around what the semester requires of her. And I've like more than mentoring, like I've connected her with people. Mm. So she's working on a project alongside her, um, degree. Cause she's part of the Monash Global Challenges, um, degree, which is like a science degree on drugs. <laughs> uh, and so she's like, okay, so I'm trying to do this. And I'll be like, oh, I know a bunch of people who are already doing that. Do you want me to put you in touch with them? And then I'll set them up and be like, okay, guys, go get a coffee, have fun. Mm. Uh, and more often than not, the person that I set her up with will come back to me and be like, you know, she's a genius, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's really intimidating. <laughs> um, but, like, they're both super positive relationships and I absolutely adore them. What about you? Have you had a mentor? Uh, not formally, Although I have had really good um, just, like, coffees and lunches and just general conversations. I have had really great conversations with someone who's um, a bit more senior than me and kind of in my ancestry, not really. She's in the infosec industry, and she's really awesome. And those lunches have been really fascinating. And... Even though it's not like a formal mentor-mentee relationship, it's like um, she's someone who I feel comfortable with asking, like kind of like what you said, like dumping feelings on, being like, this thing just happened in my workplace and I have no idea how to deal with it. What do I do? What does it mean? Because when it comes to things like workplace politics, I'm just, that stuff goes (laughs) way over my head. I have no idea what's going on. Everyone, everyone's looking at each other like they, you know, they get the hint, they see the signs, and I'm just like, I don't, someone please spell this out for me. (laughs) So yeah, it's been incredibly helpful just to have someone, not even as a formal mentor, but just someone who's further along down their career path to just ask those things and have like a calming, reassuring voice feeling like, 
okay, well, if this happens, then it means this, and if this happens, it means that, and you're fine. <laughs> and that's been yeah. Yeah, an incredible. So for a really long time, I've sort of been on the side of informal mentoring, mm. um, just because like I think it works better and is better in every possible way. But I've also realized that most people are very shy. Mm. So formal mentoring really like fills a niche for them because they're like, well, I would never talk to this person in any other circumstance. Mm. So having a formal mentoring relationship is exactly like what's necessary here. Mm. That would be good. And I would really like to, I feel like when I have enough of my shit together or not to, to take on some mentees because I'm realizing that I'm actually not 12 anymore. <laughs> Um, uh, still feel like 12 though yeah it it still feels that way but now we have a podcast and we're going to be on a radio station yeah wh- what the hell <laughs> do you think we can announce that now yeah so we'll make a facebook post about this and you know put it on twitter and whatever uh but we're going to be on access manawatu or if you're listening to us on access manawatu hi hello um, we're so happy to uh, be here <laughs> so it's a it's a local radio station in the Manawatu, which is a region um, in New Zealand, just north of Wellington. Uh, it's where I spent like two or three months every year while growing up. So I have a lot of affection slash like pain associated with Manawatu. <laughs> the pain being typically associated with bulls, which is a city that is town. Sorry, <laughs> that is just one large pun. Um, but no, it's quite exciting, and you know we're really really happy for it and we have no idea how it happened yeah. um but yeah we sort of like and like i think particularly for people kind of our age and slightly younger like to talk to someone like five years older than you often they have no idea what they did to get where they are they're just mm. kind of like not complaining mm. um <laughs> and to both realize that that's quite typical and like like luck plays a huge role in how you go mm. um and also to realize that you probably need to talk to someone who's like already decently established in the industry because the benefit of hindsight is insurmountable. Um, that's probably quite valuable to finding a useful mentor. Mm. And I think another thing that we should mention to those who are on the job hunt is to not get discouraged because luck plays such a big role in whether you find a job or not, whether you find the one you want or not. Don't get discouraged. And... By not getting discouraged, it'll help you in your interview processes as well. Uh, I certainly remember that when I had just graduated and I was sending out those 50-something applications just over and over again. Um, looking back on it, I must have sounded like a like a robot because when you're asked, like, why do you want this job? The truthful and honest answer is, I need to pay rent soon. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I need money to buy food and pay rent and live I just need money like I'll take anything and that was that's something I see a lot in students these days and it's something that I totally understand because I went through that you're you're in the short-term thinking bubble in which it's just like I honestly don't care what job I get I need to pay rent and unfortunately that's not what employers want to hear that's not what they care about they want to get someone who is really interested in whatever industry they're in and they have their own passions and they're human essentially and so you almost have to kind of like pause the short-term 
panic that's going on in your head and focus on the things that you're passionate about and you're interested in and why you're in this whatever industry in the first place. And that's what's going to make you look really good to employers. And I only realized this, I think, this year, because um, we're taking on a bunch of summer of tech students at work. Oh, nice. A um, bunch of interns. And so I was a part of, I was the interviewer. Gosh, it must have been like 50 different students for um, our four intern slots. And while we were interviewing these people, I suddenly realized that all of these students were going through the same thing I was going through and that they were enthusiastic and happy to do whatever you wanted them to do. And so when I asked them, like, well, what do, like, what do you like? What do you want to do? What do you care about? They're just like, oh, I'm up for anything. Like, I can do web, I can do mobile. You just, you know, you let me know what you want and I'll do it. I'll be that person. They don't realize, and I didn't realize back then, that that's not helpful. Like, that's not encouraging. You want to find someone who has their own niche, has their own passions. You want to find someone who cares about a part of the industry enough that they're going to go and they're going to do their best at it. And that's something that I completely didn't realize until I was like on the other side of the interviewing table. Yeah, no, that's really good. I think the other thing as well is like for cover letters, Google the company. Like if it's not a company that you've been stalking since you were 17, <laughs> like with some of the companies I'm planning to apply for, mm. um, like, just Google them, figure out what they're about and, like, put something in there about a recent project of theirs and be like, hey, I saw you worked on this. That was awesome. Mm. Um, and, like, learn a little bit about companies that you're applying for instead of just firing off, like, 50 resumes in, you know, a week. And then academic jobs are a whole other kettle of fish that I never plan on touching with a 10-foot pole. So if you're going for an <laughs> academic job, good luck. Um, I think the other thing to be sort of aware about is, like, so for people, again, like, of our generation, the uh, the dreaded millennial, like, we're kind of expected to have a lot of different jobs and a lot of different careers. Mm. Um, and so things like looking at a job and going, hey, I really like this right now, but I don't know if I love it, that's fine. Like, mm. if you have a job, do you? god take it um and then like figure out what you want to do after that like don't be sort of dedicated to one thing for the rest of your life because we don't have to be anymore and the thing I try to tell like undergrads and high schoolers is like the iPhone has been invented like in my memory Mm. and the world has changed so dramatically in that period of time I just don't feel confident predicting what the world's going to look like in five years. And so, like, my answer to the question, like, where do you see yourself in five years is, like, well, hopefully happy. Mm. That's kind of all I can predict. Like, mm-hmm. maybe maybe the world will collapse. Maybe our lives will change so dramatically, like, it will be almost unrecognisable to people from, like, 100 years ago. That's fine. Mm. And definitely when, like, I didn't plan to get a job in the tech sector, that's for sure. I I had always envisioned myself as a scientist of some kind. Um, and definitely when I when I got the job, I was, like, super imposter syndrome. I don't know if this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Is this it? Like, did I just fall into the tech sector and that's that? And I wasted a lot of 
my time there just being in the state of limbo where in fact and I've realized um, within the last couple of years is that it doesn't matter if the job you get isn't what you were expecting because you have a job and that's an opportunity that's an opportunity not only to get into other jobs in the same sector that's an opportunity to learn from the people around you at your job because it's going to be a new environment there's going to be new people and they're going to have different experiences and that is a learning opportunity and that's something I realized far too late to be honest um and I hope other people out like millennials out there realize it sooner is that it doesn't matter if you land in a job that you you weren't quite expecting because it's going to be an opportunity no matter what and you're going to get value out of it and so the the sooner you can realize that and the sooner you can do your best to to really just suck up all of the information and all of the new stuff and all of the new opportunities that are around you the better and from that you can you can keep going down the same industry you can jump to another one you can do all of that stuff a lot easier because you've learned yeah, yeah. and that's like that's basically how my mom got a job as well so mm. like my mom leaving high school at the tender age of 16 um walked into an interview for a photographer at the Wanganui Chronicle and mm-hmm. the person that was interviewing her said well I've just given the photography job to the person that worked out that door but do you want to be a journalist mm-hmm. and to her credit my mom said yes and she's been a journalist for the past 30 years because I know that she listens to this <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> so yes, my mom is only 46. Um, yeah, she's been a journalist since then, and it just kind of like changed the direction of her life, and she was chill with that, and mm. that was really good for her. Yeah. Sometimes happy accidents happen, and and sometimes you don't realize how, how good it is and how great it is for you until like you're halfway down down the line. So I think the the summary of our advice here is just just chill. Mm. Go to networking events, but chill. Meet people. I think as well, like, as Serena said, like, she's an introvert and I am an outgoing introvert. So I really like talking to people, but, man, it exhausts me. Yeah. Um, I am so tired <laughs> all the time. Uh, but essentially, like, going to a networking event is just being your best self. And if you're worried, then ask people questions about themselves because everyone loves to talk about themselves. (laughs) So if you're talking to someone and they work for a cool company, be like, okay, cool. So like, what exactly do you do? Mm. What, like, is that exciting? That must be exciting. That sounds really cool. Um, And if you're, particularly if you're, um, further on in your career path, so like doing as a research student or like, you've graduated at some point, I guess, like, um, get business cards. Because by giving someone a business card, they'll give you theirs and then you can email them. Mm. Yeah, so, like, as we said at the beginning, we were planning on um, the job market being uh, a little bit shorter um, or, like, lesser part of this episode uh, because we have a voice memo um, from one of our listeners and we also want to touch on the fact that... um, Donald Trump is probably going to be the president of the United States. Mm. (sighs) So the wonderful Michelle has sent us a response to our fandom episode. Now, if you haven't listened to that yet, this might not make a lot of sense. 
so feel free to skip the next 15 minutes or so. We'll put timestamps for you in the description box. Hi Sophie and Serena. Um, I was listening to your episodes on fandoms and thought I would kind of bring a few insights. Great podcast, by the way. Going on with the Harry Potter uh, fandom thing and everything that it's spawned. Um, a really interesting thing that I found that came from it was like a new genre of music, wizard rock, which is like mainly studied by Harry and the Potters. But I feel like that's kind of an interesting development that's also come from it and kind of goes in with this whole idea of kind of fan fiction and videos and all that kind of media, podcasts, etc. I've definitely never heard of Wizard Pop, so this is... Oh my god, oh my god, Wizard Pop is so good. <laughs> this is very exciting. I think the closest thing I've seen was that um, Like a G6 cover, except uh, Like a Wizard. That's yeah, the no, there's like a lot of original music that... Um, and thanks, Michelle, for like... Um, sending us a voice memo, mm. uh, a three-part of voice memo as we're breaking it down because you talk about a lot of different things. Uh, but no, I, I really, really enjoy Wizard Rock. Um, I think it's like beautiful, dorky goodness. <laughs> um, I was showing uh, Wizard Love, which is uh, Mika Kitty featuring Hey Hi Hello, um, which I've just linked to Serena. <laughs> um, like I was showing that like a couple of years ago and it was just like, this is excellent. Yes, good. Yes, excellent. Um <laughs> And it's just, it's very enjoyable and happy and also, like, expands the universe quite a bit. Mm. Because something that, like, is very difficult to um, put through in books, like, and, you know, no shame, um, is the sense of, like, the musical context of the world that we're looking at. Mm. Um, And so, like, no shame to JKR, like, it's basically impossible to do that via books. Uh, and certainly, like, that wasn't really explored particularly in the movies, and so to have this incredible breadth and depth of, like, fan music just being like, we're in the wizarding world! <laughs> Babe, I'm a Slytherin, and girl, you are a Gryffindor! Um, <laughs> like, that's really cool, and I think that's a really nice extension of fandom. That's have really you, cool. You haven't experienced this at all, eh? No, no, I haven't. But what this does remind me of is... Uh a lot of, like, the science songs that are out there on YouTube. They're, like, super nerdy, really cute, upbeat uh, songs about, like, the LHC and uh, and finding the Higgs boson. <laughs> oh, yeah, I had the LHC rap, like, on my MP3 for years. It was great. Yeah, it's, I don't know, there's, there's like, this niche corner of the internet that's, like, musical and nerdy and wonderful, and it's it's a beautiful place. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I'd be, like, a bit of, a bit hesitant about, like, lumping Wizard Rock in with Nerdcore music, because, like, Nerdcore has, like, um, a very different kind of niche, if that makes sense. Like, it's a lot of, hmm, Nerdcore isn't necessarily referencing, like, um, works of fiction. Yeah. So, like, I probably wouldn't count something that, like, referenced Mass Effect a whole bunch as being, like, necessarily nerdcore. Mm-hmm. But something that talks about, like, the LHC or, like, any of those. Oh, the, um, John Green, I think. John or Hank Green has a song about the, uh, the different kinds of quarks, I think. Yeah. 
I've definitely yeah. never experienced something like that, and that's like the closest analogy I can find. I'm excited to, to go watch this afterwards. Also, something that I've been really into for a while is kind of looking at the development of the Pride and Prejudice fandom. Like, on, if you look at a fanfiction.net or something, and a lot of the older fanfictions, you'll see that kind of they go for like a few chapters and then they'll say, sorry, I've stopped writing this because I'm actually getting this published as a book. And like, obviously that has to do with Pride and Prejudice being in the free domain. But if you think about like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and all these kind of books that are based off Jane Austen's novel that are basically fan fictions that are actually out in the real market and that they actually kind of have at least some kind of merit since they've been kind of officially published and exist in school libraries and as such. Um, So maybe that's got to do with kind of the prestige of the book in addition to kind of the respectability of it. But I do think that it's still kind of largely written by women, read by women, and may not be as ridiculed as kind of some of the other fan fiction genres or tropes that you see on sites like fanfiction.net and archive of our own. Um, so we didn't talk very much about uh, classic fiction and sort of um, the use of classic books in fanfiction, but certainly Pride and Prejudice is one of the most popular ones. Mm. Um, so Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, of course, as you mentioned, um, there's also uh, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which are an online vlog. Uh, there is the one that I am finding on my computer... Because I said Lost in Austin, mm. which is flawless and everyone should watch it. Oh, um, I have heard of that, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. So the other thing with Pride and Prejudice is certainly, as you mentioned, like it's out of copyright. Like people can <laughs> write and publish whatever parodies they want. Um, and that's something that um, the group that first published Pride and Prejudice and Zombies um, certainly took advantage of. There's uh, also Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. Um, was another piece they published. My favourite one actually was um, Android Karenina, which is Anna Karenina, but with time travel robots and aliens. Uh, okay. It's so good. And, like, sort of reading it, like, I really enjoyed it, but I also could not understand why anyone would ever read Anna Karenina because the bits that were just about, like, Russian politics, I just did not care for. I was like, no, bring back the aliens. Bring back my robots. Um, Have you seen... um, So I follow a lot of classical history buffs on tumblr and what i see a lot is like small bits of fan fiction around the greek gods oh yes which is really oh, I absolutely fun adore and those. really hilarious they're just so fantastic and what i see a lot of as well is um colliding two fandoms together and like mixing something like greek gods and like how to get away with murder or some shit and just interplaying those two different eras of human history and two different like medias and just mixing them into one glorious piece of fanfiction. Well, I think that's something that um, you'll find that mainstream things as well. So like Bridget Jones's diary being the quintessential example of Pride and Prejudice, but like Mm. today. um, And that's quite interesting. I find like the entire concept of just bringing the different ideas that human history has sort of come up with and just kind of slamming them together and seeing what happens. Like, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's 
fantastic. But I, I also uh, to hark back to um Michelle's comment, like I had no idea that like some people were getting stuff published from fanfiction.net, which I think is awesome. I mean clearly it happened because Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey exists. Um <laughs> huh. we can keep avoiding commenting on that. Um <laughs> let's just <laughs> keep not discussing that. Uh but like it's kinda of cool mm. that it happened to people that didn't write about really problematic relationships. Um, regarding your point about fan fiction on real people, I can't say much to do with Western media, but I can say that in Asia and on like Asia fanfic, which is the primary set for mainly Korean K pop stars and fan fiction about K pop idols which is like the main brunt of the fanfiction on the site, rather than about kind of K-dramas and the actors within them. It's usually got the uh, the actors themselves in their daily lives, or idols who don't even act, and only kind of have this onstage persona. I think, like, Michelle sort of hit the nail on the head there when referring to their onstage persona. Like, it's almost not fan fiction about real people when it comes to the idol industry because they are personas they're so fictionalized um and you often hear like rumors particularly about like a lot of idols sort of having had like major plastic surgery so they don't even look like what they used to look like it is a very fictionalized version of life and so i'd almost argue like when you're writing fan fiction about idols like they're kind of not real people they're like a construction to some extent and like this is a sort of the same kind of discussion you could have about um writing fan fiction about contestants on the bachelor which like i would probably say like when you watch a reality tv show like the bachelor there is such a fictionalized element to the entire life that people are leading within there the difference is that when it comes to idols particularly and people who are singer and bands and um particularly career that i know about because i'm a pathetic k-pop nerd uh <laughs> it's forever for them and like to an extent when they retire they kind of disappear and that's really nice um whereas like if you're competing in something like the bachelor which i think is kind of the co- closest that we could get on um western media it's for mm. you know the six or eight weeks that you're on the show that your life is entirely fictionalized and put out for everyone to experience I guess it makes a lot more sense in the world of today than it does um, maybe 20 years ago and that because of the internet we're living in such a performative exhibitionist world where it's not necessarily one-to-one communications it's a lot of like one-to-many communications and the line between uh, an authentic life lived and a life performed becomes super murky especially with reality tv yeah um i'd argue that the difference with western media is that like at no point do you like opt in to being Mm. a persona rather than a person whereas with um korean idols and um sort of like being a music star in korea or japan certainly you opt into that certainly you say like i want to be successful and i'm well aware that part of that is being an idol Mm. yeah it's interesting eh? and i guess with that they're really much more focusing on the on-stage persona of these people rather than uh them in real life or they just kind of really just take the name of the person and 
flop them into a narrative that they like. Kind of like saying, if I got to cast my own drama, I would take these people and do it as such. Um, there's also a lot of kind of loyalty within groups that I find, where they would cast the entire group, or when they're making OTPs, they would take two groups with a similar amount of people and pair them up as such. So there's kind of this level of cohesiveness that comes within this kind of fan fiction that kind of surprised me when I encountered it. And also that it's much more, because of this, it's much more easier to take this kind of fan fiction and maybe take someone else's story that they've written and replace it with your own names. And I found that much more on kind of Chinese uh uh, fan fiction website. So the biggest one I can think of is like Tiebao, which is actually more like a forum, and you can make your own forum regarding any topic that you choose. But if you look at like the kind of creative writing that occurs there, you'll see a lot of them are just altered texts, and they've basically replaced the names within the text with the main people in this. OTP that they ship and kind of people do read it and people do kind of consume it so I guess it's interesting when you look at the difference in culture there because I do know that kind of with more western uh, active fan fiction and kind of role play fix it's definitely much more based around the individual and what you see of them most likely in kind of press junkets and late night shows and interactions and behind-the-scenes footage rather than kind of maybe also their public persona. But obviously, I think a lot of these people are much more private. So you only go on, like, what you deem to be their authentic self. Whereas kind of with the whole kind of Korean music industry, because there's so much effort put into personas and images that change over different um, promotion cycles it kind of gives more of a fantastical element to the fanfiction that's written about it. It's very much more imaginative. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. I, this went quite longer than I expected, but like, keep doing great work and love the podcast, like I said. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michelle. That was so fascinating. Oh, excellent. Thank you, Michelle. That was really good. Um, we didn't talk very much about... Uh... Korean, Japanese or Chinese sort of fan fiction and the way that engages largely because we don't know shit about it. <laughs> yeah. So it would be a bit rude for us to be like, here are facts about the world. Like, I really like um, Girl Generation um, and uh, My Lovely Kim Sansoon, which is a fantastic Korean drama, but I certainly don't know enough to comment meaningfully. So thank you very much for adding mm. to our podcast. Yeah. That was our first voice memo. Yay! That's so exciting. And just a reminder, if you also want to send us a voicemail, we're castinginterest at gmail.com. And you can also be on our podcast <laughs> telling us facts Join about us. the world. Alrighty, so we might move on to um, the follow-up on our episode on silos and political extremism. Um, so in that episode, we sort of talked a little bit about journalism today and um, on a recent episode about your 
feed being sponsored and advertising and how that engages with media. We sort of talked a little bit about that as well, but with everything that has been happening in America, like <laughs> we should probably discuss that a little bit more. And I think this is probably another point where we should flag that we record quite a while in advance. Um, mm. Serena has a full-time job, many side projects. I am a full-time PhD student and my life is constantly on the edge of falling apart. Um, so we tend to record like about, you know, two or three weeks in advance. Mm. So I can be almost certain that new things will happen between now and when this yep. episode comes out. Um, yep. And so, sorry, we can't discuss that in more detail. Um, but, yeah, we're just going to talk about what we have currently because we're not time travellers yet. <laughs> yeah, um, what I really wanted to bring up again, because while I was editing silos and political extremism, um, there was a bit in there where we kind of really lightly brushed on journalism and media and its play in silos and its play in political extremism. And since, since then... Since we recorded that episode, which was two months ago, believe it or not, a couple of things have happened. Uh, the American election happened, and out of that came things like um, the Facebook fake news phenomenon. Um, so I think like the first thing to mention is that it was made public knowledge that um, Zuckerberg had chosen not to implement a way of warning Facebook users that something is fake news because it would disproportionately mm. affect conservative news sites. Um, it's also been sort of a contention that a lot of the approval of Donald Trump has been sort of like related to the amount of fake news sites that are available. I disagree with that slightly, although they certainly didn't help. No. No, and it is quite worrying when you look at the statistics and look at um, casual polls conducted that say around about the 60% mark of people nowadays get 100% of their news from Facebook, which is to say that they're getting all of their news from their personal inner circle, whether that be fake news or whether that be simply left or right leaning news um, isn't really the point. The point is that 60% give or take of people are essentially siloing themselves and not getting news from any other source. And that's that's the thing that we have to deal with and that's the thing that Facebook itself has to come to terms with. Um, Zuckerberg released a statement after this whole fake news debacle a few weeks ago, essentially sidestepping the whole problem, um, uh, saying that Facebook was not a media company, it was a social network company. But that's not really the case. The case is now that Facebook, with its 1.6 billion users, is a media company. It's disseminating media. And so is the news aggregator sites, such as um, Reddit and other social media platforms like Twitter. They become a part of the media landscape. And that's something that I think Facebook and Twitter and all of these large social networks and also news aggregators have to come to terms with. They're not not a part of media anymore. They're very much a part of the conversation and they need to understand the responsibility that comes with that. 
I think it was a bit disingenuous to sort of make the call that like Facebook wasn't a new site, it was a social networking site after you've like already created the tech to identify fake news and then decided mm. not to roll it out. Like to an extent, like making a partisan call about that, being like, Oh, it affects too many conservative news sites, so we couldn't possibly do this. It's like, um Yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean, it is extremely disingenuous when you look at what Facebook tells advertisers and what they tell them is, look at our statistics and look at how like your ads can influence actual voters. Because they can, and they've most definitely done studies on that. And so to turn around and say, like, well, we have no effect on any elections is simply false. I mean, the other side of the problem is that like mainstream... like well-renowned news sites were also giving like a lot of news coverage to Trump, mm. um, which I think is something yeah. we really need to not forget when sort of talking about fake news and the fact that it can really like have an impact. Um, like mainstream media was also definitely feeding into this. Absolutely. And this actually leads quite well into the other thing that I wanted to point out is that, um, so in our Your Feed is Sponsored episode, we talked a little bit about ad blockers. While it's very important to like pay writers, ads are just not a good way to go. They're malicious. And so we're kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place when it comes to paying for journalism. And the current model for all media outlets right now is ads. And it's making your articles interesting enough so that they get clicks. And so when, when we train our journalists to say, hey, your survival depends on how many views and clicks that you get, then of course they're going to do more clickbaity articles. Of course they're going to pick the most inflammatory and most uh, extreme pieces of news and publish that rather than the nuanced journalism that they probably should be and they probably want to be doing. And so I feel like even though the mainstream media outlets, the cable news channels, um, even respected places like New York Times, Washington Post, they do take a lot of the blame for this as well. But I think we have to keep in mind that they've been forced into this corner of writing inflammatory headlines because they rely on clicks and views and whatever bullshit engagement statistics they need to survive. And so I guess, like, I mean, the only current solution that I can think of now is just to subscribe to one of these traditional uh, journalistic outlets. Well, a lot, of, um, a lot of freelancers were also things like Patreons. Mm. Um, and you see this in comic artists as well, is that they'll have, like, subscription or you can support them on Patreon or, you know, you can do something else and give them money to do what they work. So I'm... Um, Rebecca Shaw, who freelances for a few different uh, places, mostly SBS comedy. She is a very good and funny writer. Um, she has a Patreon. And it's just kind of like, okay, like if you like her writing enough and you enjoy reading it, um, most of the time, I think all the time maybe, you'll read it for free. And so if you think it's worthwhile, you can give her money. Mm. Yeah. I guess what we need now is like a more sustainable version of that. That's a... Uh scalable in that you can scale it up to an entire newspaper like the New York Times or Washington Post. They've been I mean, relatively doing pretty great work. I'd be kind of in like I'd be kind of into microtransactions for like mm-hmm. 
quality media. Like, I don't want to give you, like, five dollars, but, you know, if you make a good <laughs> pun, I'll give you, like, a dollar. Yeah, so I I thought this for a long time as well, but then I I thought about it some more, and I realized that we would be driving ourselves into, like, the same problem if we were relying on microtransactions, because then journalists would be incentivized to write single articles that appeal to a certain group of people and make them feel happy in some way. And while the articles that you and I might give money to and might enjoy might be different, we might think that they're of, I don't know, like a higher journalistic standard. There's, I mean, subtleties in reading about subtleties of politics is boring. Reading about policy is boring and people don't enjoy that stuff. I can see a world in which we have these microtransactions and the journalists are again forced into a corner where for their survival they must publish articles that people enjoy reading and so they might become sensationalized. They they might be avoiding what we're trying to get to in the first place. So I don't know, like, it's it's a really tough problem. And, I mean, if anything, if anything, this election has identified a lot of key areas in society where we need to improve on, one being the sustainability of journalism and good journalism. How do you feel about, like, the government support of mainstream media outlets? I think it's a-okay as long as it's balanced with, uh, as, as long as there exists private sector alternatives. And again, it's one of those things where it really depends on the government and it really depends on how it's run. Like, for example, in New Zealand, we have Radio New Zealand, which is um, a government-sponsored media outlet, and they're fantastic. They do great work. Um, and our private sector news is a, kind of falling behind and when I say kind of I mean you go to stuff.co.nz you go to New Zealand Herald and it's mostly trash I know maybe like two three legit journalists still like hanging on and you know trying to do their best work but the majority of it is clickbait and it has to be because again like this is the kind of stuff they're surviving on and so I guess like the good thing about state-sponsored Journalism is that they get that sustainability, they don't have to worry about clickbait, and they don't have to worry about getting views. Um, The flip side of that is that they're state-sponsored, which means if they say something that is uh, not so nice about the government, then perhaps they might be at risk of losing their funding and losing their jobs. So, you know, it's, it's give and take. Yeah, basically balancing, like, funding with the ability to, like actually be critical of the government which i think is something very Mm. important that journalists can do and maybe should do a little bit more often um yeah 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 it's it's all a balancing act eh? because definitely um i mean there is a problem of being overcritical of the government which is what we see around a lot to the point where it's unhelpful, to the point where people are just angry at the government for a variety of reasons, to the point where they stop trusting the government, they start disengaging from um, the political landscape, they start disengaging from things like voting, then that's the point at which it becomes uh, more unhelpful than it is helpful. 
definitely the government should be taken to account of like all of their actions and everything they do should be publicized and public and open but when when we're overly critical to the point of being unhelpful that creates distrust within the citizenship and that creates a stagnation in the government that creates disenfranchisement and eventually that creates a situation where you get a lot of voters voting against a functioning government just because they're angry at the government which is I feel like a part of the big reason why Trump got elected. Now of course in this case I'm referring to stable usually western countries like where we are from New Zealand from Australia um, all the way to the United States the UK. Of course in the case where you're in an incredibly unstable country, it's natural to distrust the government. I guess what I'm trying to say is it becomes unhelpful when we lose faith in the idea, in the concept of a larger governing body, rather than whatever party might be in power currently. I'd love to see that happen in Australia, to be honest. Yeah. I I think... A lot of the media outlets I engage with are quite critical of the government in various ways, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. they might be critical of, like, business choices. They might be critical of the fact that Australia has tropical gulags. They might be critical of marriage equality, like... And compulsory voting in Australia has, like, you know, several effects, and one of them is the fact that, like, we just have these complete nonces in charge of the country and like we have elections <laughs> that are fought over like who can be better at fear-mongering and it's just it's very it really wears me down and mm. I think I've always sort of been a proponent and like I think particularly if you're in the US currently like you should be engaging in politics and calling your local representative and saying like telling them what mm. you want because they don't know unless you tell them um mm. And they were elected to represent you. But I look at Australia and I think, we're just kind of pretending it's not happening. Yeah. And that's so dangerous. Oh, it's just like you have these cities which like are incredibly, incredibly different from rural regions, which are then also different to a lot of um, Aboriginal settlements, because if you're in an Aboriginal settlement, the government might just turn your water off. Like... um, that's fucked up. And no one's really talking to each other about what they need. And you particularly see that, like, a lot of the white people in the cities think that they know exactly what the Aboriginal settlements need and kind of ignore the rural towns. And so the people in the rural towns are kind of mad about that. And mm-hmm. you see this concerted effort to make people afraid of Muslim people and people who aren't white, despite the fact that Australia is just like. I think one of the large strengths of Australia is the fact that it is such a diverse nation. Um, Mm. But this ongoing campaign of fear, this ongoing campaign against, like, refugees of the fact that, like, somehow a guy that, like, set fire to himself in front of Parliament House is a bad guy. Like, that takes away a lot of my faith in the fact that the systems work to protect people. No, and I think think that's a... 100% fair comment to say that the systems that we have currently don't work to protect people. And I think what we should be doing is exactly what you just said, is engaging more, not less, with our current political systems and political structures. 
what I hope to see from this is more women, more people of colour, more LGBTQIA, more minorities in general, running for positions of power, running for these offices. Because that's, I think that is the least destructive way and most productive way that we can change the system for the better, is actually put good people, put diverse people from different backgrounds into these positions and offices of power. And while that is a slow and painful process, I do believe that is the least destructive process. Because, of course, like, we could, sure, we could have a revolution, we could overthrow the government, we could burn it all down, but what, how can we guarantee that what will come up from the ashes is righteous, is just, is good for everyone? How can we guarantee that it won't be another self-serving group that just wants to get power that rises up from these ashes. We can't guarantee that. And so the the practical way and the slow and painful way of doing this is to engage more and not less in your political structures, is to is to approach, I don't know, our our mentors and our idols and the people who we believe should be in these positions and make sure that they run, and in some cases, like, make sure that we engage in the system. And that we engage with people that are different from us. I think something I see a lot in Australia is just, like, I'm not trying to throw shade at white people who think (laughs) they're doing good things. Because a lot of the time, these are really driven, really interested, really invested, white, or even people of colour activists who live in Melbourne and have always lived in Melbourne or Sydney or Perth, like their entire lives. Yeah. But mm. You have to engage with rural communities. If you're trying to change yes. Australia, you have to engage with all of Australia and understand where they're coming from. And this is just where, like, an incredible amount of my frustration stems from, both here and, like, with the American election, is you have all these people, mm. like, in Australia going, oh, how could they elect that fascist? And it's like, firstly, mate, tropical gulags, come oh, on. God. Um, <laughs> secondly, like, we look at it from... A lot of people look at it from very sheltered views. You look at it from always having grown mm. up in the city, always having grown up in a place that's very accepting of queer people, of migrants, of different languages. And then... In the aftermath of the election, I've read a lot from people who grew up in the Midwest who said there was one non-white person Mm. at my school. Like, and they were weird, but they were probably weird because they were so alone. (laughs) Like, these people don't meet people of colour and they hear Donald Trump say things like, I'm going to get the corruption out of Washington, and they think that sounds good. And so they vote for him. And it's Mm. just like, well, that's kind of fair enough that they vote for him then. And I think the lack of engagement from... Mm progressive liberals who are often like upper middle class or like have the potential to be upper middle class which is like when you're a student and you're technically below the poverty line but you're going to make money one day that they have no understanding what Mm -hmm. it's like to be in a situation where everyone you know has lost their jobs recently or you don't feel like your um, elected representative is looking out for you or that Washington DC is looking out for you or you just don't know anyone who's gay and so you're like, are they real? <laughs> I feel like they're not real. Why do they need to get married if they're not real? And it's just like, well, I kind of understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a case in which like us as left-leaning liberals living in urban cities, 
we have to drink our own medicine. We have to take our own advice. We keep telling people from the more rural, more conservative areas of the country to, you know, empathize and understand the humanity of people of color, of LGBTQ. But we're not doing the empathizing with those rural communities. We're not giving that back. And so, I mean, it's, it's yes, rural communities, conservative communities, they have to recognize the innate humanity of minorities. This is true. They have to do that yeah, work. That is that very, empathy. very important. <laughs> very important. On the flip side, we have to be taking our own advice. We have to drink our own medicine. And we have to just take fucking 10 minutes uh, out of our busy lives of talking fast and walking fast and think about what it's like to live in an area where no television shows are made about you, where no one cares, where people all around the world uh, make fun of you uh, for, I don't know, your funny accent or, or... And, I mean, this speaks back to a past episode where we talked about how the lower socioeconomic classes, the accents around those are more defined than the upper class. So, so it's like another othering technique, right? Yeah. And um, I want to just really quickly mention this article that I read on Vox, which was written by a journalist who wanted to understand why rural Americans were essentially voting uh, not in their best interest. So a lot of rural America and a lot of rural places um, all around the globe, they take in more federal funding. They take in more tax money than they give back. However, these are also the people who are voting uh, for a smaller government for less taxes. So they would be disadvantaging themselves. And this journalist wanted to go in and understand why they were voting against their own interests. And this was before Trumpism, uh, and during Trumpism, they were there. And there was this one analogy that came out of that, uh, felt very accurate in portraying how they, um, how they felt about the whole situation. And the analogy is this. Every single citizen of the, uh, of the United States are in line for the quote-unquote American dream, whatever that is. They're in this line. And throughout their lives, throughout rural white America, what they have seen is that they're in this line and Muslims have been ushered ahead of them in the line. Um, black Americans, um, LGBTQ, minorities of any creed or color, they, they are ushered ahead of them in this line towards the American dream. And it feels unfair. And... I guess it doesn't matter to them how they got there in the line in the first place. They've been waiting for years and other people have been cutting the line. And so I'll, I'll give you a link to this article because it was incredibly fascinating and I think everyone should read it. It's a, it's a really in-depth look into white rural America and I think it will do all of us as left-leaning liberals good to to read it i think the other thing is that like we hear a lot from um left-leaning liberal progressives that you know why should we try and understand the conservatives when they don't try and understand us and it's like i mean they would if you just spoke to them like they were people a lot of the time like mm. go to a rural community just talk to people and i think something very good that um yasmin um so yasmin abdelmagid is a author engineer and now television presenter in Australia um, and as part of a book tour she went to a bunch of rural towns 
and I think that was like a huge thing because she was just like hey I have a book I think you should buy it do you want to hang out and talk about like my life and ask me questions about you know my Mm. Islam I was like yeah that's really really important um, with been things of interest and thanks for listening to this um, episode it's been a bit of a hodgepodge uh, but we've talked about the job market we've talked about um, we've had a throwback to fandom and we've had a bit of a throwback to a few of our episodes both stylism political extremism and your feed is sponsored so yeah. we've had a good time and we hope <laughs> you have too it was a fun time uh, if you also had a good time please do leave us some stars on iTunes tell your friends about it and maybe even leave us a voice memo join in on the conversation we would really love to hear from you you can find us on twitter at casting interest uh, our email is castinginterest at gmail.com our website is thingsofinterest.co we're on facebook um and yeah we love hearing from you and we hope you enjoyed this episode and stay interesting <laughs> <laughs>